Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. All right, and we're back for uh, part two uh, with, uh, you know, talking about SCN management with uh, Greg Tilka from Iowa State. Uh, we're going to jump right into the management discussion, Greg. Um, so what, what should a grower be looking for if, if they think they have SCN in their field? What kind of symptoms would they see? Well, they would see stunting, but not and stunting and yellowing of the foliage is the, the classical symptoms, but not early season. When I see stunting and yellowing, it's kind of July, mid-July, late July. I, in the old days when people called on the phone, um, when the phone rang in, in June and they wanted to talk to me, I knew they were probably talking to the wrong guy. If they're seeing yellowing in particular, it's probably iron chlorosis. Yep. Yep. Um, but once you get to mid-July, third week of July, you can see some stunted spots, some yellow spots that are just showing up that would be classical SCN symptoms. But probably the most important point to, to, to answer your question, Andrew, is um, we are crippled by the absence of symptoms. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. The, the fact that fields that look perfectly healthy have soybean cyst nematodes. So um, I, I would probably say that farmers shouldn't be looking for anything um, have you ever, an, have you ever answered that? Why? Yeah. I, I've kind of wondered that too. I, I remember yeah. in grad school, you know, yeah. you, you could have a field with high populations and have no symptomology. Yeah. Have you ever look, looked at why that is? No. Um, the only kind of circumstantial evidence I could tell you about is um, I did my PhD studies at the University of Georgia yep. and um, I did some field studies. And the year I, my last field year was 1989. And I remember in here in like in February of 1990, right before I moved up here, that the yields down there were the highest in recent decades. And these average state yields for soybeans were like 25, 26 bushels per acre. Wow. And that's a function of the soils down there. Yeah. And so the only thing I can think of is our soils are so incredibly rich that the plant is able to harbor the nematode allow it to reproduce and even suffer yield loss, but not look like it's on death's door. <laughs> yeah. It's not really a uh, still feed it, keep feeding yeah. itself, and yeah. yeah. Yep. But it makes but me it still, makes me suffering. think of it makes me think of corn rootworm. How often do we have a serious corn rootworm problem and we don't we don't find right. out about it until we have Big a windstorm, wind right? Yeah. Or or the rain shuts off and all of a sudden that was one of the first time Andrew kind of slapped my hand in a field. We were scouting <laughs> corn rootworm and he asked me the the pressure the previous year and I didn't know the answer. And so I got I got in trouble. I had to scold I had to scold him. Yeah, I got scolded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so Greg, if, if a grower thinks they have a problem, if if these line up, you know, if if it's mid to late July, they, they mm -hmm. see some yellowing and, and they think they have a problem, is there anything is there anything they can do to verify that it is SCN? Yeah. yeah, they still if it's mid to late July, they can dig roots and look for the little white females that are on the roots that it's not brain surgery. The only 
finesse involved with it is you don't pull plants from the soil. You dig them from the soil and then you kind of gently crumble away the soil from the root mass. Yep. Um, there are some high risk areas where you can look first. Uh, one of those that everybody thinks of is the um, field entryway where you're bringing in equipment with dirt or soil from other fields. Yep. Um, low spots where flooding might occur and move soil. Um, high pH. We hadn't talked about this yet, hmm. but the nematode loves high pH really? soils. And we don't understand why biologically, but it's absolutely completely true and consistent. So you could look at high pH spots. Define define high pH. Um, anything above seven. Okay. 7.5, 8, um, 8.5. I don't know we have anything right. that high, but um, but you can start out, Sean, down at 5.5. So right. uh, a, a story in the mid-90s when GPS coordinates were or, or GPS units were coming out, um, one of the people very involved in Iowa Soybean Association was Ron Heck, farmer from Kerry. Oh, yeah. And uh, Ron said, let's start looking at this technology in my farm. I'll give you two 50-acre chunks of land to study whatever you want to study. So we did that. We gridded it out to 100 half-acre cells in two different fields. And lo and behold, we found he had soybean cyst nematode. Um, but when we laid down the maps of pH and SCN, he had little sections, little 0.5-acre cells that were around 5.5, 5.6, all the way up to like 8.5, 8.6, 8.7. Wow. And the numbers, if you, if you put that on a graph with the SCN egg numbers, it was almost a straight line. Hmm. So the relationship between SCN numbers and pH seems to span a wide range of soil pH from fairly low to fairly high. Hmm. So but now the last place you can look, and this will be useful for your listeners, um, is along a fence line. And can either of you find gentlemen guess why along a fence line? Oh, uh, I cannot. I'm thinking about the... Field entrance made sense. You know, you got yeah. machinery spreading spreading stuff along the fence line. Oh, uh, no. Actually, no, I can't. Okay. <laughs> I thought I, I well, thought I had a synap- quick synopsis of something, but no. Windblown soil. I, so I want. we were talking about this the other day. The amount of soil erosion I've seen this winter is shocking. Yeah. Yeah. So hmm. I can confirm fence that. Lines. Now, first off, that so you're, Sean, you're talking about soil you see on snow drifts. I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and movement with water. I mean, I mean, yeah. Movement with these, we've had these rains coming on top of frost, you know, frost covered soils. And I mean, yeah. So what got me was driving around, take a look at when you do this, let the amount of soil that's on um, snow drifts. Yeah. yeah. And that's a visual indication. So um, I had the good fortune of working with an agronomist in Southern Minnesota um, in the late 2010s. His name's Dorian Gatchel, and this was a passion of his. So that guy, he would travel southern Minnesota and scrape off snow with soil on it and bring it back to his office, melt the snow, and then dry the soil and send it to me. And we extracted it for SCN. We found cysts full of live eggs that were hatching out juveniles. Wow. And then I put some of that soil in um, containers and grew soybeans. And they produced new females in 28 days. Wow. So it is. That's crazy. It's amazing. Yep. 
So anyway, that's why we we also say you can look along um, um, fence lines because yeah. that's where windblown soil tends to accumulate. But well, it makes sense. The other now. thing is, <laughs> let me mention one last thing, and this is, might be the thing I should have started with. In the mid '90s, in the mid 2000s, in the mid 2010s, I got funding from the Iowa Soybean Association to do random surveys of Iowa, and random is the key word. Um, you would never want to pick 200 samples from fields in the state of Iowa um, just arbitrarily driving down the road. Um, we worked with the USDA and they have a computer that randomly picks fields for their people to go measure crop growth. And in those three time frames I mentioned, we paid them to pull soil samples for us. And they sent them back to Iowa State. We tested it for SCN. In the mid-90s, it was 72% of the fields had SCN. In the mid-2000s, it was 70% of the fields. And in, in the mid-2010s, it was 74% of the fields. Hmm. So I was intrigued by the fact that it didn't change. And those numbers, should you should consider them all the same. Yeah. But my point in all this is that probably 70% of the fields in Iowa have SCN, if we picked it up in these random surveys and the random surveys had about 250 fields sampled each time. So it wasn't a small uh, sample number. So farmers should just be looking for it. And rather than maybe going to these high risk areas I just talked about, they should just work with their agronomist and get some samples taken periodically just so they know if it's there and what the numbers are. Yeah. Do do populations in a field increase every year that there's soybeans? Yes. Um, well, no. <laughs> yes, if yes and no. How's that for an answer? Yeah. Um, you can't go yes. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that brings us to what what is grown every year that soybeans are grown. So ninety five percent of the varieties available for a farmer to grow in the state of Iowa have SCN resistance yep. in the form of what we call PI88788. And we now see 60 or 70% reproduction on those resistant varieties. 5% mm. of the varieties have genetics that are called P-King, yep. P-E-K-I-N-G. And that still keeps nematode numbers in check. So, 95% of the varieties, if they're being grown in the field and it has SCN, that number is of eggs is building up because we've had those available since the early 90s. And we can document this, you know, I could, I, you know, I'm an academic, I want to show PowerPoint slide with all my graphs and regressions and stuff. Um, we can prove it scientifically. Um, so the, the last twist, which you guys can appreciate because you're more broad agronomist than me is um, there's almost no susceptible soybean varieties available now to grow. So that almost guarantees that a farmer is growing PI88788 genetics yeah. and exerting selection pressure yeah. for the nematode to overcome it. So I, you know, the analogy we can draw is herbicide. And can you imagine if we used a single herbicide active ingredient? for 20 some years, we know what would happen. Yeah. But the difference is farmers don't have a choice in uh, the nematode resistance mode of action. Farmers do have other herbicides to pick from. Yeah. So yeah. we are shifting the nematodes across the state of Iowa 
And there's more and more reproduction on varieties with that PI88788. How much does rotating crop impact population? Rotating with corn? Yeah. Corn and soybeans. Yeah, corn can can knock your numbers down 50% in one year. I've seen it as little as five or 10% to as much as 50%. Hmm. And I only studied it for like three or four years. So I don't I don't know why. Sometimes it's a little and sometimes it's a lot. But the twist is you don't get another 50% in year two um, because of those dormant eggs that the nematode produces. So yeah. you get your biggest drop in egg numbers in year one of corn. You'll still get a worthwhile drop of egg numbers if you grew two years of corn. But after a couple years, third year corn and, and further on, um, there's not much left but dormant eggs that are going to just take their good old time to hatch out over the next 10 years. So yeah. we do want farmers rotating corn with soybeans, though, because that that's what keeps numbers dropping in a corn rotation, corn bean rotation. So, so a grower that would rotate every year versus someone that would do four years corn, one year soybeans. They're not, they're not the, the ones that would rotate every year. They're not at a higher risk for building higher populations over time. No. Yeah, they probably are because if four years corn, one year soybean, they're going to get decreases in year one of corn, year two of corn, and they'll still get little decreases in year three and four. But one year corn is vastly different than four years of corn yeah. in reducing numbers. Do soybean cyst nematodes have any alternative hosts? Um, not really here. Um, if you get up into uh, Minnesota and North Dakota, um, some of the edible beans, um, dry beans, black beans, kidney beans, those can be really, really good hosts for SCN. But here in the corn soybean belt, not really. Um, with one exception, and maybe you've heard of this, um, but there's a winter annual weed that turns out to be a tremendous host for SCN. It's called Pennycress. Oh, yeah. And uh, my favorite so weed. It's a weed. You're <laughs> going to want to control it. But there is an effort to domesticate Pennycress and harvest it for oil. And um, that would be a bad thing to do in fields that have soybeans this nematode. There is a company. I, yeah, that is, I remember is, hearing that. that that's that's develop, developing that as a cover crop. So 70% they, they, of the fields roughly would be a bad idea. And since we know it, it, right, on average. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I got to ask too, I guess you, you kind of touched on how they, how they would spread. I, I think just for our listeners sake, you know, you touched on wind. Is there any other ways that a, a grower say they have a high, a field with high, high SCN pressure? Would, would, is there any other ways that that would spread within the field or to other fields? Well, it, it could. The, the next, I'm convinced that from field to field and farm to farm, it, it's primarily wind, but then there's certainly flooding, movement of soil uh, in water, flood water. Uh, beyond that, you know, I get asked to talk about um, equipment movement, and yeah, yep, that's I, what I was kind of feel silly. I, I don't until a farmer knows what he or she has going on in each of their fields. I don't know if it's worth the effort. So yeah, sure. it all maybe starts with knowing which fields have it and which fields don't. And if you have a set of fields or a farm that you might rent that doesn't have it, you would certainly want to think about cleaning 
equipment, cleaning soil from equipment. But until you do that, it's it's probably it could be wasted effort. I shouldn't say it's probably wasted effort. It could be wasted effort. Yeah. We talked, you brought up PI88788 and Peking. Um, mm. Are there other uh, are there other resistant genes or are those are two tools available today? Well, that's a, I have a frustrating answer to that, Sean. There, there <laughs> are other breeding lines with other resistance genes, but they're not used. They're not used by the commercial seed companies. And if it weren't for me and my colleagues um, harping about the breakdown of 88788, I don't know that we would see as many Pekings as we see. And we do have uh, indications of hope. Um, Last year, 2022, we had twice as many Pekings in our variety trial as we had had any time before. And we have even more for coming up for this year, 2023. Oh, nice. So is there any um, other ones that we haven't discussed? For some reason, I want to say Rip Ripley's. I no, no. So the, no. that's literally all we have. Just Peking, PI88788. Yeah. Um, there are six or seven others in the scientific literature that there are different PI numbers, but, okay. but nobody yeah. uses them. Oh. Um, hmm. That's and, literally and so that, it, huh? That is literally it. And there is one technology that's resistance that's coming available in, I believe it's 2028. And that's the transgenic SCN resistance yeah. that's yep. going to be offered by BASF. But yep. that's, that's completely, it's BT resistance. Um, so it's completely different mode of action. It's not traditional SCN resistance. And um, yeah, it, so it's, I mean, we can talk about it, but it's do, just so different. We've, how does, we've, let me, let me jump in for a second. I will say, and this is mostly to offer you some encouragement, Greg, is mm-hmm. um, as somebody that works in the seed industry, it seems like there was a belief four and five years ago that that the peaking bean wasn't able to keep up on yield. So even though we thought, you know, we had the control, um, I, I would say that conversation, and we, we try and be very brand agnostic on our show, but I mean, there are several um, commercial companies doing a great job of promoting mixing peaking beans in right now. Yeah, so I definitely. see a conversation that five years ago, it was kind of like, Every time it came up, it was immediately squashed. Yeah. Don't even talk to me about it. And now it's it's at least a part of the conversation. And and I would agree with you. I mean, I know we are looking at them at a significantly higher number than we than we ever have before. So yeah. So let me let me follow up on that, Sean. I agree with that hundred percent. And you know what's happened is they Peking varieties with Peking resistance were not as good yielding ten years ago, fifteen sure. years ago. And sure, they've improved the the breeding, but let's not give the breeders all the credit. You know, what I think is a major part of that equation is the nematode. The nematode is dragging down the yields of the 88788 yep. resistance. And yep. suddenly, comparatively, Peking yeah. is good or is, is better yep. in terms of yields as 20 years ago or 15 years ago wouldn't have been the case. So yeah. um, then the, I say they called Peking's yields yield drag. We have yield drag now on 88788. It's yeah. not due to the plant's genetics. It's due to the nematode dragging those yields down. Yeah. So this might be this might be too high level of a question, but if you took an average Iowa grower, would you encourage them to think about a certain rotation in terms of yep. resistant genetic in their soybean acre? Yeah. It, it, boy, I, I was hoping that I could work this in. <laughs> 
So that's perfect. Thank you for asking this. Sean. Every once in a while, we have good questions. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. no, this one in particular, though. So starting this year, I am recommending that farmers grow Peking varieties in rotation with 88788. Even though they're hard to come by, every farmer who has SCN should search for Peking beans and get them in rotation with 88788. And we're never going to be able to grow continuous Peking. It will lose its effectiveness quicker than 88788. And that's why farmers need to grow both now. Start with a Peking if you want. It's going to knock your nematode numbers down a lot compared to 88788. And that should give you a little better yields uh, two years from now when you grow uh, 88788. But absolutely, everybody... <laughs> who has SCN need to start using Peking and 88788. And then it's going to be a log jam who can get the seed and who can't of the Peking varieties. Yeah. But there is no reason to wait. Now is the time to do it. And you shouldn't grow continuous Peking. If you, even if you can get it, you need to rotate with 88788. Yeah. Hey, I really like that. And I'm not allowed to give my thoughts at the end of the show. Andrew's <laughs> the only one that's allowed to do that, but I think it's a great takeaway. You know, the two things would be dollar cost average your yield over the two years, over the two soybean years, so yeah. that you're not, you're not giving a black eye to the peaking and then also not growing continuous. That's really, really good. I apologize for taking us off script. Oh, I just, it, really was, uh, it was, it was, it uh, was appropriate at the time. It, it so. made my uh, summaries at the end. As there you you'll go. See. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so my final question in regards to resistance, how, how does that PI 88788 work? I, I've heard many times it's referenced how many gene copies mm -hmm. impact. How, how is that? Yeah. So let me answer the question, but you didn't really mean to ask this is the way resistance works for Peking and 88788 is that feeding site doesn't form inside deep inside the roots. So the juveniles still go in the roots and they starve because they can't get the feeding site to form. And that's true of Peking and 88788. Okay. So 88788 has a resist one resistance gene that we know of, and it occurs in from one to 10 copies. And the more copies you have, the more resistant it is. And actually, ironically, a susceptible variety has a single copy. So mm -hmm. you need two or more copies to be resistant. Now, Peking has two different resistance genes, and you need both of them for resistance. And then we've learned of a third one that seems to be optional. You can have it or not have it. So both in the world of Peking varieties and 88788 varieties, some are going to give you better control than others. Hmm. That's, that's uh, good to know. Um, as we transition from resistance genes discussion, have, have we looked at, or have you looked at, do we know if there's any impact um, on planting date? Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've thought of, you know, those questions of planting date and um, tillage and some other agronomic things. And there's really nothing consistent and obvious. So I, I hesitate to say that they don't have an effect. I, I will tell you that 20 years ago, when we were doing variety trials, we would plant them in various areas of the state, and we would want to plant them in a field with SCN and without SCN nearby. And the reason we don't do that anymore is it's hard to find a field without SCN. But when we did that, we would plant them on the same day. This is a variety trial with 70 different varieties. Yep. We would plant two different fields within a few miles of each other, same day, 
and we would harvest them seven to 10 days apart. And the, the non-infested field would be the later one maturing and harvesting because it stayed alive longer. Yeah. And so, and that's part of the yield loss due to SCN is the plant just simply has a shorter lifespan. Yep. So um, if you take that and translate it back to your question about planting date, um, anything you can do to extend the growing season for your crop is it's the plants alive longer to produce yield. And anything that happens to shorten the lifespan is going to probably result in reducing yields. And yeah. the nematode does that on its own. So it's not, that was going to be my next question, if there's any interaction between planting date and maturity. Yeah. And so maturity. it sounds like maybe potentially later planting date, longer yeah. maturity might have... Opposite of our yeah. white mold discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you got to pick one or the other. Yeah, yeah. We just, we just had Damon right. Smith on here and that's, uh, so late, later planting date, later maturity, we think potentially, right. we don't, we don't know for sure, but potentially may reduce the impact. But what, what about early planting date and later maturity? Yeah, that too. Early planting date, longer maturity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm a simpleton. So it seems to me like. <laughs> Join the club. The, the longer the, the, the plant is alive, it, it's, it's harvesting sunlight. And hopefully it's, it's putting resources into yield. And yeah. um, we know the nematode is going to shorten that life. And um, yeah, but I'm, I know there's lots of other considerations. There's risks of frost for early planting. And yep. There's the photo period and stuff. It's not ever simple. Yep. Um, now we get to talk about my passion. So seed treatment. Um, tell me about seed treatments on the market today. Not, not, not necessarily you know, brands, but are there technologies that are working, um, whether that's, whether that's, uh, synthetic chemistry or, um, biologicals, is there, is there products that you're seeing efficacy? Yes. Um, or more specifically, yes and no. Um, so with support through the soybean checkoff from the Iowa soybean association, we, we study seed treatments, at nine locations across the state of Iowa. Um, and typically we do that with three seed treatments a year and in paired plots, we compare them against their base. We don't line up one seed treatment against the other, against the other. I, as a scientist, I wanna know if the nematode component of the seed treatment is having an effect. Yep. So over the years, we've done over 200 field experiments with eight or nine or 10 different seed treatments. And um, sometimes over the years, we probably don't study any individual seed treatment for more than three years, which would be 27 experiments. Um, we've seen some seed treatments offer zero yield increase and as much as about five bushels per acre yield increase. And um, there's two of them on the market in particular that, um, have about a 25% success rate in our experiments for increasing yield significantly. And all the others are, are below that in terms of significantly increasing the yields in, in our plots. Hmm. So from, if we want to look at that data, where do mm -hmm. we go? Yeah, that's a good question. I think everybody, um, I mean, I think everybody's interested yeah, we in should, that. We I know, link that. I know to Darren, I mean, Darren probably, Darren could probably provide some of that. Yeah, um, I, that's a, that's a real um, downside or weakness to what we've done. We don't produce an annual report of sure. our seed treatment trials like we do our variety trials. Sure. I, I've sent 
I've sent people summaries. Yeah. And if if you guys want it, just email me and remind me. I can send you a summary. Yeah. Um, and then you're welcome to share it. I mean, it's public information. I yeah. it, it's not worth the checkoff investment for me to do it if we're not sharing it with farmers. Right. So yeah, no, right. it would be good. But, you know, we we get uh, we get questions like that. So we'll post it yeah. to our, our podcast show link. Yeah. For the for the growers listening, I mean, we've obviously talked about the impact of um, rotation and, and length of rotation, that sort of thing. We talked about peaking and 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 uh, PI eight eight seven eight eight. Are there any other management practices um, that growers could do to help with with SCN management? Um, well, I suppose, and it feels like I was giving this answer thirty years ago. <laughs> um, anything else you can do to make sure your crop is healthy sure. is what you should be doing. So a uh, stressed crop for whatever reason, fertility or compaction or weed pressure is going to probably suffer more SCN yield loss than a crop that's thriving. So my, my final question, and then we got one last question for you, and then we'll, we'll uh, okay. out of respect to your time. So I, I laugh when I ask this, but there's a more seriousness to it. Mm -hmm. why, why are nematodes so hard to manage from, from your an expert, point of, expert point of view? Um, probably the easiest answer is they're below ground. Um, and so we know less about them. It's harder to get a chemical or a biological down there to manage them. It's like the Mariana um, then, Trench versus the Moon. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, that's a good. That's a good way to put it. And, and then th with SCN, boy, the just the the reproductive capability and the survival make it incredibly tough. Uh, you know, producing. I mean, literally, you could go from a thousand eggs per half cup of soil to fifteen thousand in one growing season, and then to have those fifteen thousand eggs, some of them surviving for ten years. It's it's a double whammy. It's got a really unique biology yeah. that makes it really difficult. Yeah. Okay. Two questions and we'll let you go. So the, so the, the, um, we started with, what are you excited about an egg? Uh, you mentioned earlier, you're weathered, <laughs> uh, with, uh, with your career, what's one of your favorite things you've been a part of? Um, that's a good question. And I have a good answer, um, which isn't always the case. Um, <laughs> one of the most fun things I've ever done is the SCN coalition. And so we did an SCN coalition in the nineties. It was funded by the soybean checkoff and we hired a professional communication firm mm. to help us do our extension communication. And the first thing they did was say, we need to have a survey and they surveyed farmers and found out what they knew about SCN and what they didn't know. And then, this is so cool, they crafted what we learned from the first coalition was farmers were expecting to see sick looking soybeans. And we talked about this. That doesn't happen with SCN. So a real key point was you could have SCN and not know about it. Yeah. So the first thing this communication firm did was drew a logo. And that logo is a little soybean plant with roots. And they drew a target, a, a rifle sight target on the roots. How brilliant to just say, there's yeah. where you need to attack the pest is on the roots. And then they came up with six words, take the test, beat the pest. And ah, that's all you that's needed awesome. to do in the 90s is take a soil sample 
And if you have it, grow a resistant variety. Yeah. So fast forward to 2018, we launched the new SCN coalition. It's a little more difficult because this one, we're operating in the world of resistance not working properly and talking about different sources of genetics and so forth. But we did market research. We found out what farmers know, what they don't know, and our messages are crafted towards the to increase knowledge about the problem with SCN. And then we've done follow-up market research and we see the answers improving. So it's like giving a pre-test and a post-test, except that it's like a three-year communication effort. So it is so cool to number one, survey your target audience and find out what they know and what they don't know. Then to develop uh, educational materials based on research to change that perception. And finally, to be able to document that you've made a difference by changing uh, farmers' knowledge and agronomist knowledge. And yeah. we've done all those things with the coalition and with universal support from the soybean checkoff. And a lot of um, seed companies have provided financial support this go-round, the new SCN coalition as well. So that, that's kind of been probably the most rewarding and most fun thing that I can say I've done over the years. Oh, it's an excellent answer. and. Um... Every time we have a guest on, I'm 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 just you know just kind of floored by just the body of work and the and the time, the investment, and the you know you mentioned a coalition, just the amount of people that have tackled this problem. Um, we end our show the same way, uh, which is cashing in my penny. So I don't know how Andrew's supposed to pull out three <laughs> succinct thoughts from this. Uh, this th- there's a lot here, um, but Andrew, I'd like to cash in my penny. Absolutely. Uh, I got five main takeaways. Uh, Tilka, please uh, criticize me at, at any point. Uh, my first one, uh, you brought up, Sean, good point. Uh, Tilka is now recommending rotate your P-King with PI-88788 if you have SC in your field. Two, we learned they like high pH. Anything above 7 or 7.58, they, they, they like that. Uh, third, here in Iowa, we believe they have a, around a minimum of three to up to six generations. Yeah. So, so we know based on that that you can you can uh, increase numbers within that growing season. Second, if or fourth, if you're a, a grower wondering if you have SCN in your field, start by looking for that yellowish stunting uh, soybean, uh, mid July to late July. That's a good indicator of SCN in your field. And then fifth, uh, that female can lay uh, fifty to one hundred eggs outside of her body while on the plant. And then up to 300 inside that body as she becomes a cyst. So that right there gives you kind of an indicator of uh, what one juvenile female can become uh, in that field. So great information, uh, Tilka. You were always one of my favorites, still are. Uh, I'm glad we could catch up and you've been a phenomenal guest. Andrew, as we get uh, as we get ready for well, I guess before we do that, uh, any criticisms for Andrew? It's always (laughs) fun when somebody's known him for a while to uh, you know uh, add or take away from his uh, penny for your thoughts. Well, Sean, I was hoping people wouldn't find out that I've known him for a long time. <laughs> Cats out of the bag. So, yeah, uh, I feel the no, same way. <laughs> just, just teasing. But yeah, the only one I would tweak is I, I think farmers should dig roots and look for SCN females yeah. um, yep. and not rely on symptoms, stunting and yep, yellowing. Definitely. So point four, I would revise a little bit. Yep. Yep. I'd like um, to record. I, I tell farmers and agronomists, just carry a spade. And when yeah. you're in a soybean field, dig some roots and you never know what you might find. Yeah, Symptoms or no symptoms, right? Dig roots, yeah, look right. at those roots. Exactly. I, think it's, I think it's important to note that I got 
a plus one and you got corrected. <laughs> I think it's good for our audience to know that. We got, we got a chalkboard in the background. Yeah, we yeah. got our... <laughs> uh, Greg, you've been amazing. Andrew, give us a teaser about next week. Yeah, we're going to wrap up our tar spot conversation with the expert of of the experts from Purdue, and we have a guest co-host from Iowa State on. So looking forward to it. Look forward to it. Uh, Greg, thank you so much. This was excellent. Really appreciate your time today and and uh, your expertise. My Thanks, pleasure. Tucker. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com, or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.